Good afternoon and welcome to Harvard's 362nd commencement. This afternoon we will be celebrating the annual meeting of the Harvard Alumni Association as part of our 362nd celebration. Today we'd like to congratulate the 6,500 new alumni who this morning graduated into the Fellowship of Educated Men and Women. And we would particularly like to thank and welcome their family and friends who are here today celebrating with us and those who are watching from afar. I'd like to introduce my colleague, Rennie Little, from the great class of 1955. And Rennie's gonna talk about the program, this afternoon's program. Rennie? Thank you, Nancy. Welcome all. I see that the stadium is filling up. The stadium only because here we are high behind, high, high above courtside, as Johnny Most used to say. Uh, I wanna, uh, while I have the chance here to give a hat off to, or uh, hat on to, uh, to Jeff Movius, who handled this job for many years with Nancy, and whom we miss up here. I know Nancy does. Uh, he, he was a retired after 30 years of service with the Harvard Development Office, and he's home. He's writing poetry, I'm sure, and doing some consulting, and he's smart because it's probably cooler there than it is here. I, I also wanted to, to uh, thank uh, for, Sal for Nancy and I, uh, Rachel Lampson, who put this, uh, who's the director of board services, who put this uh, wonderful syllabus together of information that we have, and uh, Kate, uh, Kate Freed, two of them. I promised her I'd have it memorized by the end of the week, uh, next week, but I think that's probably a little too late. Uh, and also thank Nat Guile, because Nat uh, provided a good deal of the the uh, commencement confetti that uh, Gene Martin and uh, that the uh, uh, Harvard Bulletin Alumni Magazine produces, uh, which has all sorts of information in it that's, that's helpful to uh, what's happened at commencement. And finally, to thank our camera crew, uh, Kathy and ATR here for the nice job that they are doing to keep us all informed as what's going on at at, at, at the at afternoon exercises this afternoon. So I will turn it back. Am I doing the program at this point? I am, Nancy says I'm doing that. Well, she, she knows I'm the rookie, so um, I'm learning the ropes here. But yes, what will be going on this afternoon is we will see the alumni procession from the old yard. And actually, uh, in looking out there, I don't think that the um, the honorands have come over yet. They will be lunching over at the in Lobe House and over in the tent over there uh, on the top of the Pusey Library. And at the same time, various things are going on. The 25th and the 35th reunions uh, will be gathering behind uh, Sieber Hall and, and they will be coming over from there. Uh, and the it looks like the alumni procession has already come in from the old yard uh, and because I can see them up on the uh, on the platform there the chief marshal and her aides it looks like it may be that her aides are already there uh, and she will be coming over with the honor guard uh, when the alumni procession takes place we will then hear a welcome uh, from Carl H. Mueller, AB 73, JD 76, MBA, 
76, who is the president of the Harvard Alumni Association. And he will be uh, uh, talking to us uh, and making uh, welcoming remarks. Then we will hear the old drinking song, Gaudiamus Igentur, which we will all sing in Latin, followed by Carl's remarks. Uh, it's an old, Carl's an old Eagle Scout. Uh, we have uh, uh, common ground in that we both were, went to Philmont together. Uh, when Carl will introduce Stephanie uh, Wilson, who is the SB88, second African-American in space, who just gave a very nice toast to Oprah and presented her with some things from outer, escape, outer space uh, at the uh, Chief Marshal's spread. And then Carl will announce the winners of the uh, Overseers and HAA Director election results. And we will figure out, all of us who, uh, who keep track of that, we'll see whether, whether those that we perhaps uh, voted for will, will uh, be those that win. I'm looking at the uh, at the uh, at what you all are watching there, and just noted that Jason Luke came on, whom we know is the one who really puts this all together. Jason is responsible for setting up the 35,000 chairs, which, because of last night's thunderstorm, had to all be toweled off this morning before the graduates and their families came for the morning exercises. I can see that the alumni are wandering in, at least those who were coming in from the, from the west side of the University Hall. Uh, you can see them coming in slowly, going down the classes. Uh, we start our procession with the oldest classes, and today we have the 70th reunion class of 1943, that is the oldest class. Now we see the class of 1952 coming um, into the Tercentenary Theater. It's interesting to see the vehicle there. I can remember at one point where uh, Hamilton Fish, the class of 10, who was the oldest uh, alum, came in with a, with a uh, tricycle, or a, uh, uh, which was uh, an interesting way to get around. 1930, one of the oldest class, one of the older classes is coming in. Uh, after the, uh, I wanted to say that going on with what was going on after the announcement of the overseers and directors, we'll see the presentation of the Harvard medals to uh, James Baker, William Thaddeus Coleman, whom I understand is not with us today, and Georgine Hirschbar. Then we'll see a salute to the alumni, which is really, we'll get the news from the fundraising side of the alumni. Association from Jim Rothenberg, AB 68, MBA 70, who's the treasurer of Harvard University, followed by the band who will swing down the main aisle with Harvaniana and uh, the old fight songs, which we know so well. Then Drew Gilpin Faust, our president, will, uh, who is our 28th president, will have a few words to say. And then we will drink, sing Radcliffe, Now We Rise to Meet Thee, uh, which I will sing with gusto in honor of my good wife, who was a class of 55. And finally, addressed, we'll hear from Oprah Winfrey. And um, we're all looking forward to that. Finishing up at the end with Fair Harvard, which um, what used to be Fair Harvard, Thy Sons to Thy Jubilee Throng. And then it was changed to We Join in Thy Jubilee Throng. 
and our HAA president in 1995, uh, Champ Lyons, who had a daughter that went here, thought it should read, We Sibs to thy you know, Jubilee Throng. So that's what we'll be doing today, and I'll turn it back to Nancy if she's, oh, she's, uh, she, she's going to put on her hat now, and this is really something for you to see. Nancy has, uh, has been uh, really fostering these, and uh, she's had a great deal of, uh, you will see them around as we uh, salute the parade today, and she'll have something to say about them. Well, yes, these, uh, the top, my top hat, um, men in the Happy Committee. The Happy Committee was founded in the 1860s to encourage alumni to come to Harvard commencement. And the men have traditionally worn uh, a top hat and tails. Here is Rennie. You want to put on your top hat for us, please, Rennie? Well. There you are. <laughs> Rennie is also a member of the Happy Committee. And um, women um, were actually didn't wear hats, but then one year I tried to come into the yard early and my male friends who had their top hats were able to come into the yard without a ticket and I had to wait until the gates officially opened. And the next year I found my crimson top hat. And so this year we have um, a Milner from Jamaica Plain who has created the hats, and so you will see women of the Happy Kitty Committee with either black or crimson hats with feathers. You will see them in the yard as part of the alumni procession. As I said earlier, there are many reunions today. We have uh, close to 4,000 alumni who have come to Harvard for their reunions, and um, the re tradition of university, college and university reunions actually started here in Harvard. Um, the first commencement was in 60, 1642, and the elders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony came to Harvard to celebrate, and they wanted to show their support for the college, so every year thereafter, they invited alumni to come back and celebrate as well. And so now we carry on this time-honored tradition of inviting alum alumni to come back and welcome the new graduates. During Harvard's bicentennial year of 1836, the alumni festivities were particularly exuberant. Ralph Waldo Emerson of the Harvard class of 1821 wrote about the alumni parade that year. Cambridge at any time is full of ghosts, but on that day the anointed eyes saw the crowd of spirits that mingled with the procession in the vacant spaces year by year as the classes proceeded and then the far longer train of ghosts that followed the company of the men that wore before us the college honors and the laurels of the state. Long winding train reaching back into eternity. And so every year, Rennie, we come back to Harvard in June as part of the long winding train of alumni reaching back into eternity. It's great to be with you here today. We do have a beautiful day. Uh, we were expecting 90 degree temperatures. Fortunately, there's a little bit of a breeze. It's not quite that hot. But as we say on the happy committee, hot is better than rain. So we're thrilled to have sunshine and there's a great spirit in the air today in Harvard Yard. Uh, I just noticed Kate Freed came up to... Did you get them? 
We think this is the 174th year of the meeting of the HAA. The uh, HAA was established at commencement in August 26, 1840, but it took them two years to get organized, and the first meeting was actually in the great courtroom in 1841. So we think if we go do the math right, this may be the 174th annual meeting of the Alumni Association. Rennie, people ask me, um, Harvard was founded in 1636, the first classes took place in 1638. People often ask me, well, if this is the 377th year in Harvard, why is it only the 362nd annual commencement? Well, and let's... Go ahead. <laughs> well, there were a few years that it didn't meet, unfortunately. Couldn't give you those off offhand, but I know there were some times, I think perhaps during the war, World Wars that uh, when the classes didn't, didn't meet. So it is a little bit off uh, off from what we would think of it met every year. And there you see a member of the Happy Committee with her La Follette rosette, named after Ellen La Follette, class of 1954, who designed the rosette. And um, you also see the name tag as well as the uh, banner that indicates that person was an aide uh, to the Happy Committee. And we should point out that when we say aid to the Happy Committee, it's A-I-D-S, AIDS, or A-I-D, aid, not A-I-D-E. The A-I-D-E's are in the morning. There's my class. I'm going to be looking for my wife to see whether she came today. 1950, that's Ann Scott, a well-known music, musician. There she is. I think that's her in great debate. Uh, no, it isn't her. But anyway, the late great class of 1955 seems to be about to parade into the to the auditorium. The earliest class that's, that's parading as, and having its reunion is the class of 43, the 70th reunion, Galen Stone's class. They're meeting at the Doubletree Guest Suites Hotel, and um, you may remember, or some of you may remember, that Winston Churchill spoke at their graduation in 1943 uh, giving the, uh, presenting the Marshall uh, Plan at that time. But 1948 is holding its 65th reunion. Marshal Ray Goldberg and Secretary Wally Robb. Wally has uh, been the class secretary for that class for 61 years. He's not the oldest continuing secretary, however. That honor goes to Dan Fenn, the class of 1944. They're also headquartered at the Doubletree Suites. They're enjoying the Boston Pops uh, they did on Tuesday night. And one of their classmates in their 65th report credits their longevity to chin and a sense of humor. Rennie, there's one of the Happy Committee hats. The woman on the right has one of the crimson-colored Happy Committee hats that is a replica of the hat that I've been wearing now for eight years to our commencement celebrations. Before we go on with the various reunion committees, I want to talk about um, the people who will lead the procession are our three um, alumni who are uh, who are the uh, our three oldest alumni we have Donald Brown who was from the class of 1930 he was born in 19 in November of 1908 he is our oldest alum and the next one is George Barner from the Harvard College class of 1929 he was born in December so he's a month younger than Donald Brown 
And for the Radcliffe, we have Lillian Sugarman from the class of 1937, who was born in 1916. So uh, Carl Muller, our president, will introduce them today. Um, and we will show them our gratitude for making the effort to be the oldest alumni here at our festivities today. The class of 1953 is holding its 60th reunion with Firth Marshals Walter Greeley, Jim Story, and Secretary Chuck Wade. Walter, we will remember, was the most valuable player in the first Beanport Hockey Tournament. Rennie, excuse me, there's Jim Baker, James right. Baker, who is one of the Harvard medalists today. Right, and that was his wife that he was talking to there, Maggie. And he was class of 1968. 68. Jimmy, uh, I remember well being a track man uh, at his the Yale game in 68, won the mile, the two mile, and took second in the 880, all within a span of 60 minutes. Uh, but he's gone on to even greater things as an alum, uh, heading up the uh, European uh, reunion and Harvard clubs of Great Britain and has a great, uh, a great history of being very supportive of Harvard. He was also, a, he's also a former president of the Alumni Association. That's correct. Rennie, people ask me why is commencement on Thursday? I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> well, back in my day, as they say, uh, they coordinated with uh, Yale because the Wednesday before commencement was one of the Yale football games and then the uh, commencement was on Thursdays, and then the crew race was on Fridays. So it was a matter of uh, coordinating with, with Yale with that. But since that's been done away with the change of schedules, why uh, they've kept it at Thursday, but we no longer parade down to, uh, to the baseball diamond as we used to, the reunioning classes for the baseball game. I think that's probably just as well, especially on a hot day like this. People often ask me, why is it called the Ivy League? Most people think it's because there's ivy on the walls, on these Georgian brick walls we have here. But in fact, the reason uh, the Ivy League is called the Ivy League is that there were four universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Dartmouth, that formed the original athletic league, the first athletic league in the United States of America. And it was Roman numeral four, which is an I and a V. And that's why the first athletic conference in the United States was the Ivy League. And we still call it the Ivy League. Right. Going back to the 60th reunion, I was talking about Walt Greeley. I have some members of the class, which many of you may uh, Recall one of them is Cardinal Bernard Law, Bernard Law, and Harvard professors Harry Mansfield and retired Harvard librarian Sidney Verber. Walter was the chief marshal for commencement at their 25th in 1978, which was the first year that the AHA, which was prior to the forming of the HAA, it was called the Associated Harvard Alumni, president was a Radcliffe graduate, and Murray Morgan, class of Radcliffe 46 better known to many of us as Nancy. The class is housed at the Royal Sinesta Hotel. They've enjoyed a number of symposia, and one of your signet friend, Professor Tom Kelly in the music department uh, has been uh, enjoying them. They've enjoyed a clam bake and an interesting lunch with Dr. Thomas Gill of the class of 86, head team physician of the New York 
New England Patriots who discussed the field of sports with them. Here we see alumni uh, on the stage congratulating each other. You see on the left, that's Georgine Hirschbach, former registrar of the university, longtime servant uh, at, and, uh, of the university and administrator. She is also one of our Harvard medalists today. Um, today is the day, this morning, uh, there's a member of the happy committee, resplendent with sunglasses. It shows you what a sunny, bright, sunny day we have today. In the morning on commencement is when the graduates get their degrees and when honorary degrees are awarded. And the afternoon is the meeting of the worldwide Harvard Alumni Association. We have more than 350,000 alumni from around the world in uh, more than 180 countries around the globe. The modern version of the Alumni Association began in the 1840s and our first president was John Quincy Adams former president of the United States. And we say here in Cambridge that being president of the United States is an appropriate training ground for being president of the Alumni Association. It makes me wonder if Barack Obama would be interested in the job after he leaves the White House. It's <laughs> a good thought, Nancy. Uh, moving on, um, the class of 58, 1958 is having its 55th reunion. This is Bob Story's class, John Finley III. Elizabeth Hatfield's class. And perhaps the best known member of this class is Eric Siegel of the Love Story fame. And it's interesting to note in yesterday's uh, Boston Globe, you may have seen a note under the name section, a special visitor, David Johnston, is the Governor General of Canada, who is the closest thing Canada has to royalty, Queen Elizabeth's representative to Canada. He was a Canadian, a, a maple leaf, and a, a three-time Harvard hockey uh, captain and uh, well-known part of the athletic uh, hall of fame here at Harvard. And uh, he's obviously in town because it is his reunion year. And interesting enough that he was cast in Love Story as Davy Johnson by Eric because they lived in the same dorm and across the hall from each other and uh, uh, got to know each other quite, quite well at that time. Yesterday was the day for the class day speakers. Uh, today is the day for the university. Yesterday, the college had Soledad O'Brien speak to the senior class. Jeffrey Canada spoke at the Kennedy School to the graduates there. James Meredith spoke at the Graduate School of Education. Ann Moore, my business school classmate, former uh, CEO of Time Incorporated, spoke to the business school graduate graduates and Jeffrey Tubin spoke to Harvard Law School graduates. Richard Saul Werman spoke to the design school. And today at the medical school and the School of Dental Medicine, Harvey Feinberg, uh, class of 67, MD 72, uh, who also earned a master's at the Kennedy School and a PhD at FAS, he will be speaking to the dental and medical school graduates over in the medical school area. Harvey was a candidate for, to be the president of this uh, August organization, uh, and it would have been an excellent one had he done so. The 50th reunion, the class of 1963, is an interesting class as it was the first class in which Radcliffe students received Harvard diplomas. And if members of the class, as some of you may know, Christopher Bennett Cerf was an Emmy and Grammy Award winner, 
TV producer, Robert Reichauer is a member of this class, and Secretary Youthon uh, spoke at their graduation. Mike DeLand was their chief marshal. Uh, one, one, uh, according to their, their report, their 50th Union report, one classmate uh, runs a nudist colony, and one was actually shot to death in Vietnam. These are interesting bits that you pick up when you read the uh, annual Red Book or reunion reports that each class puts out at the time of its reunion. Rennie, I uh, don't know if you know this, but those of us um, who um, were admitted to Radcliffe College and attended the Harvard classes with Harvard men, do you know that after 1963, we have diplomas that are signed by both the president of Radcliffe and the president of Harvard, and we think they're much more valuable degrees than those of you men who have only a, a degree signed by the president of Harvard. Well, I get a good deal of uh, flack from my good wife, uh, class of 55 at Radcliffe too, about Radcliffe degrees, and uh, I always uh, have said she was the magna cum laude graduate, and I was the Laude how comer. Uh, we've been able to uh, stick together for 56 years, so I guess we'll continue to do so. The uh, classes of 1968, the 45th, the class of 1973, the 40th, and the 1983, the 30th, will have their reunions in next fall. And uh, so we will not, we, they may be here uh, parading in with their class, but they will actually have their reunions in the fall. This works out well because the HAA staff is very busy at this time of the year, and it loosens up things a little bit to have those reunions, which are not the subsidized reunions held in the fall. The three subsidized reunions for Harvard are the 25th, the 35th, and the 50th, of which they get support. And they live in the dorms, those that wish to, and discover how sparse the rooms were, when the, which they didn't perhaps realize when they were undergraduates. Uh, Can we get a shot of uh, the president um, who is standing on Widener's steps? Can we get a shot of Widener's steps? During the alumni procession, the president sit, stands on the steps of Widener and greets alumni as they pass through. And that's one of the reasons it does take some time to get the alumni here, because the president likes to say hello to alumni as they are walking in front of Widener and then filing into the Tercentenary Theater. For a long time, at the um, different classes, all of the classes paraded from the front of Harvard and, and uh, Hall, Massachusetts Hall. But over the years, that's changed so that the 25th and 35th uh, a reunioning come in from Seaver. And the question was how did, uh, in terms of crowd management from the Happy Committee's point of view, uh, it was the uh, classes the, the, uh, were introduced to the provost. The trouble was that nobody knew who the provost was. And he sort of stood there, poor guy, and, and nobody knew who he was. And he, he tried to shake hands, and it was difficult. So we now have arranged it so that the 25th and 35th are greeted by the chief marshal for commencement, Stephanie, whereas the president meets the oldest grad that we mentioned and the uh, oldest grads coming through from the tree spread, which is over in the east end of the yard. Over the years, the tree spread, of course, has grown considerably. And it's from there that uh, the oldest grads come in and then the 50th reunion comes in. And they, 50th and the oldest grads, parade down in front of John Harvard and come in 
to go up to the platform where the Chief Marshal's Honor Guard, and we can see them lined up there, are there to greet the, support the, the Chief Marshal and, and the President. And um, at the same time, the older classes, who have, before the, uh, younger than the 50th, are, are coming in from the side at the north end of, of uh, University Hall. There we have a shot of the Widener steps. You see the provost with the sign to the right, Alan Garber, class of 77, is our provost. He is there. I don't quite see the president, but she must be there somewhere, greeting the alumni as they pass in front of Widener steps. During the morning exercises, the 50th reunion class shares the stage with the dignitaries, the deans, the members of the overseers, the corporation, and the president. In the afternoon, it's the 25th reunion class. And there you see the view of the camera panning from Widener steps, showing the full view of Tercentenary Theater, and then uh, from the back of the stage. So you are looking right now to see the 35,000 seats that are available for the audience this afternoon, and this is the view that you would see if you were sitting on the stage, uh, which is where the exercises will be emanating from. There's always a, a desire to try and, and uh, sit in the shade, and that's easier said than done because the sun moves from time to time in different locations. But the effort is, is there. It's a warm day here today, and uh, we see a lot of uh, a lot of those in, sitting in the chairs, fanning themselves with the programs, trying to stay cool. Randy, one of the things I love about Harvard commencement is that this ceremony, which is the longest-running ceremony in the Western Hemisphere, has been happening on these grounds since 1642. And in fact, the, the, the festivities have ebbed and flowed over the years. Uh, in, this, in the um, 18th century, they wanted to liven things up, so one year they brought an elephant into Harvard Yard. And other years, they had people dressed up as mermaids. And other years, they had people dressed up as mummies. But the real reason people come to Harvard Yard for commencement is that they offer free beer from a tent in the old yard. So if you're ever in Cambridge, Massachusetts during commencement, at on commencement day during lunch, you can go to the beer tent and get a glass of free beer. That's a tradition that dates from the middle of the 17th century. So we are all about history and tradition here today. Absolutely. People ask about Radcliffe and Harvard. They actually merged in the fall of 1999. And in the fall of 2000, Radcliffe formally uh, became known as the Radcliffe Institute. At that time, Drew Gilpin Faust was their leader. Uh, she has since moved on, obviously, to become our president. But the Radcliffe Institute is uh, on the same level as the graduate schools and brings in uh, students from all over the world on fellowships now to uh, different subjects of area, which is obviously for them to do their research and the graduate work they're doing and to get together for cross-fertilization. And uh, it's become a very solid part of the, uh, of the uh, alumni and of the uh, undergraduate and graduate affairs. Rennie, I always love what Peter Gomes, our late um, beloved uh, minister to Memorial Church um, who died in 2001 I love 2011 yeah. I love what he used to say about this day 
Someone observing the casual dignity of the day remarked that commencement is more like a lawn party of a ballet, and it certainly is a lawn party today. And less, a less charitable but more astute observer suggested that the vast assemblage in formation in the old yard was very much like that of the wonderfully chaotic game of croquet with flamingos and hedgehogs in Alice in Wonderland. First-time visitors are horrified at what appears to be confusion, but then they remember that this is, after all, Harvard, where conformity, even of self-preservation, has been elevated to the rank of an art. That, that it works at all is a tribute to patience and goodwill, and a general sense that, come what may, the day is to be enjoyed. So I really think, I always think about Peter Gomes on commencement day because he so reveled in the festivities that we are enjoying here today. Well, we, uh, we have some fun on the happy committee, which if you have to realize is about 70 members now. We had about 15 when I came on board over 30 years ago. And one of the things we talk about is having a subcommittee on atmospheric conditions. And Peter was our chairman of this. And since he uh, died in, in 2011, uh, we've had some excellent days for commencement. So we now think that perhaps that he's closer to the action, we assume, uh, perhaps it's why we is uh, even better uh, weather than we had in, in the old days. And mentioning uh, David McCord just in passing, we don't see many academic robes at this affair because this is the alumni exercises. This is the afternoon for alumni. And there is our commencement speaker, Oprah Winfrey, who's just arrived on the stage, resplendent in a crimson colored dress. With Charlie Beck, who is a former HAA uh, president. She is greeting Alan Garber, who is our provost. And walk, she's walking across the stage. I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say this afternoon. And there she is with a front row seat looking out over the, 30, the crowd of 35,000 here in Tercentenary Theater. I was mentioning that there are very few academic robes, but I do have to note David McCord's uh, notion of robes. Uh, and his quote was, robe after robe scattered a rainbow, which is a nice way of putting putting it, but as I say, we don't see many of those in the afternoon. In fact, we don't see much of the earliest classes that graduate. Some of them are probably home and sacked out or continuing to have lunch. All of the houses don't receive their diplomas up here. They receive their diplomas at their houses. There are 12 houses where they've been dorm, dorm or the dorms that they've lived in for three years, and they will receive and have received their, their uh, diplomas down there with the get presented by the various masters co-masters of the houses in which they've been in and as you can see tercentenary theater is filling up we are just a few minutes away from the opening bell that will announce the beginning of the afternoon exercises here in tercentenary theater I, we had a shot there a while back where we could see Linda Greenhouse, the class of 68, who was the Phi Beta Kappa speaker last Tuesday. She was the second uh, woman to receive, to be a chief marshal of commencement, Ursula Opens being the first one, and she had a wonderful white hat on, which she has on today. 
There's the banner that led the 50th reunion class into Tercentenary Theater. I think one of the reasons you see fewer robes this afternoon, academic robes, is partly because it's so hot. So people are resplendent in their colors and awaiting the start of our afternoon ceremony. It's, it's mighty hot, as we've said, but it's interesting to note that the 35th reunion class of the 1978, as is their logo, uh, a logo that says HR7, and then the eight is a little snowman. And the snowman represents the fact that the class was, was graduating in the year of the great blizzard of 78 here in the Boston area. And they've kept that as their, as their mascot. mascot. It's also interesting to note that the individual who, who uh, designed that also designed the uh, logos for the Harpoon Beer, which is uh, owned by Charlie Story of the class of 92. And uh, so there you are. They, they picked it up in their senior year. Uh, the 35th, is, as I said, was one of the ones that's been subsidized by the university. Classmates are housed in Winthrop House and in the Queen's Head Pub. Some people don't realize that John Harvard not only gave money and books to Harvard, but he also gave them a pub, the Queen's Head Pub. And this was reactivated about four or five years ago now. It's known as the Cambridge Queen's Head Pub, and it's now located down in the Loker Commons underneath Annenberg Hall. And uh, it's been nicely designed with a great deal of Harvard memorabilia in it. And, um, it really is an old-fashioned pub, which is what the undergraduates desired. Uh, they wanted to have that, and it was much better than what was in there originally. Um, this is, of course, uh, they are having uh, their uh, night. They'll come over from the Seaver Quad after lunch at the faculty club today, as we mentioned, and be greeted by Stephanie Wilson, 88, the chief marshal. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield was their class speaker. You remember, he's the one who never got any respect. Uh, Friday, they'll have some interesting discussions at lunch for those who did not attend did not attend Radcliffe Day, which is always traditionally on Friday, followed by a symposium on Saturday and a Fairburn lunch at the faculty club on Sunday. And tomorrow is Radcliffe Day. The Radcliffe Institute Medal will be awarded to Jane Alexander of the class of 1955. Jane Alexander, some of you remember, is uh, uh, Mr. Quigley's son. Those of you that remember football in the early days, you remember that uh, Quigley was the one who ran out on the field with his little red beret on to take care of, uh, of football players that were uh, hurt on the field. He's, um, he was well known at the time. He replaced uh, Dr. Thorndike, who was originally part of the first of Harvard sports medicine. Randy, most people don't know why Radcliffe is called Radcliffe, but in fact, the first scholarship at Harvard College was donated in 1643 by a woman named Anne Radcliffe, who was Lady Molson, and she donated the first scholarship at Harvard. And in honor of that, the, in 1879, what was called the Society for the Collegiate Instruction of Women, where Harvard professors were hired to give the same lectures to young Boston women, the same lectures as men received at Harvard, 
um, they named that organization Radcliffe College in honor of the the first Harvard's first benefactor. And the old Harvard Quad, or the Radcliffe Quad, is now has houses in it that house both males and females. And of course, uh, it's a good 15-minute uh, walk from the river houses. So the undergraduates, when they come to uh, uh, be determined by random as to what house they will be in, there's always the afraid that they're going to be quadded. Uh, on the other hand, if they are quadded, they found very, well, many of them found that they're just as happy up there as they would be in one of the river houses. The rooms are bigger and supposedly the food is better. As we said earlier, Harvard was founded in 1636. It was originally called New College and it was in the town of Newtown. But then when John Harvard died and left half of his fortune and all of his books to New College, it was decided to change the name of the college to Harvard College in gratitude for John Harvard's gift and to rename Newtown Cambridge after Cambridge, England because John Harvard had gone to Cambridge University in Cambridge, England. The big uh reunion at this time, of course, is the class of 1988's 25th reunion. And this is the class where the actress Elizabeth Shue left the class of 88 to start of a, uh, start of her degree uh, to become an, uh, to win an Oscar nomination for her portrayal of, of an, uh, a prostitute in leaving Las Vegas. Some of you may remember. It's interesting to note that uh, she came back and received her degree cum laude with the class. I don't know whether she's with them today, but um, who knows. The 25th class is an interesting one. It's the first one that's subsidized, and all of the family is invited back. And uh, this means that all of the kids are invited and uh, are handled by undergraduates who sign up for it, uh, for uh, babysitting at night, and uh, for uh, running the events for all of the uh, kids during the day. And here we see the president's procession, the president of the university, the overseers, the, and other dignitaries are coming to the stage to signal that this signals the beginning of our afternoon program. You can see them coming now. You see the, the signs. Um, that's the chief marshal, Stephanie Wilson, class of 88. Um, it's Carl Mueller who will speak to us in the white outfit with uh, next to uh, Drew who's in that lovely um, uh, pink uh, overshirt there and behind them you can read the label. There goes the bell which symbols the beginnings and start of the afternoon exercises. So we will let you enjoy the afternoon program and then we will come on at the end to wrap up the afternoon exercises of Harvard's 362nd commencement. There's the dean of the faculty of arts and sciences, Mike Smith, followed by the overseers. The, over, the overseers, the women of the overseers traditionally wear black and white hats, so the women you see in black and white hats. And now we see the honorary degree recipients coming forward. There's Dr. Hudson, Dr. Mark Good, Goodhart, who's the secretary to the court. 
the Harvard medalists. That would be Jim Baker, Georgine. I don't think our other medalist is with us today, but I think his family is William with us. Coleman, no, Coleman, no. uh, one of the uh, things that was lucky was when we finally put these signs in that you saw there, because before that time it was terribly difficult to know who was who. Once we got the signs in, then we could at least tell people to line up behind the signs and uh, hope that they knew who they were. <laughs> there the overseers are mounting the steps to Widener. Sorry, mounting the steps to, to, to the stage to, to, in front of Memorial Church. Many of these are not only happy committee members, but are the marshals that are supined by the chief marshal for commencement, who offers it primarily to uh, leaders of the younger classes who come in. They are uh, become marshals for the day. There's another of the happy committee hats. This one was a black one with the feathers. And we were sure to make, there is President, President Drew Faust. Drew Gilpin Faust, a Civil War historian. And this is, she's just finishing, I believe it is her seventh year as president of Harvard University. There's always a lot of photo ops at these occasions. Uh, and some other interesting hats that you'll see from time to time. I think we're finally getting uh, organized here. There's Jack. Reardon, Jack Burden in that baseball hat. cap. Jack is the executive director of the Alumni Association, and he's been executive director since the early 90s. Used to be the director of athletics, as many of us remember. Isn't that Dan Fenn in the lower That's left? That's Dan Fenn, yes, the oldest oh, class secretary, class longest, of 1940. Yep. Longest serving class longest secretary, serving class secretary. In Harvard history. Nancy and I are both class secretaries. Actually, I'm co-treasurer of my Co-treasurer. She's also the treasurer of the HAA. So, so we know the money is in good hands, right, Absolutely. Benny? Absolutely. <laughs> there we are. Well, Rennie, are we ready for the afternoon? Are we I ready for we the are. afternoon ceremonies? I hope you all are. It looks like we're about to begin. Can everybody seated so that we can...
honored guests, fellow alumni, family and friends. It is wonderful to see you all here. Welcome to the 144th annual meeting of the Harvard Alumni Association. I am Carl Muller, member of the college class of 1973. and of Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School classes of 1976. As the 134th president of the Harvard Alumni Association, the HAA for short, and in accordance with the traditions set by our very first HAA president, John Quincy Adams, I raise this gavel and call this meeting to order. This morning, after receiving their degrees from the college and the graduate schools, more than 6,400 new alumni joined our ranks. All graduates are automatically lifelong members of the HAA. With, many, with all the privileges and resources, we hope to help you discover in the coming years. Congratulations and welcome to an astounding community made only richer by your presence among us. I also want to congratulate your parents, your families, extended families, friends, faculty, and staff across the university, the people who have believed in you and supported you throughout your time at Harvard, and those who are not here with us today, but who would be very proud and who are very much with us in spirit. When the Harvard Alumni Association was founded in 1840, there were no more than 10,000 living Harvard alumni. Today, you have joined over 350,000 Harvard alumni, including 20% living outside the United States in 189 countries. We want to welcome you, and we want to celebrate. So please turn to your program and join me in singing Gaudiemos Igatur, or in English, English so let us rejoice.
Honor the past. Embrace the present. Shape the future. This is what the Harvard Alumni Association does. We do it in countless ways, including 190 Harvard clubs around the world, nearly 50 shared interest groups, multiple class reunions, and the celebrations of commencement week. Years ago, when I was trying to decide where to go to school, I kept going around in circles until I finally turned to my father. He was a farmer in South Carolina, but at 19 had seen the world from the cockpit of his combat aircraft in World War II. He said to me, son, you don't ask my advice much, and I don't stick my nose into your business. But since you asked, go to Harvard. <laughs> it cuts the mustard. I began to explain the merits of my other options, but he stopped me. I have been all over the world, he explained, with people from all walks of life, sometimes in tight spots. The ones from Harvard are different. They stick together like nothing else. If you get with them, they will take you places that you cannot imagine. This year, my wife Allison and I have traveled widely for Harvard. In March alone, we went around the world. Dublin, Kuala Lumpur, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Hangzhou, San Francisco. We witnessed what my father had experienced 70 years earlier. Harvard is not just a university. For those who choose to stay connected, it is a lifetime of limitless possibility. Whatever your hopes and dreams, and we all have them, they will come to life more fully and more quickly if you keep Harvard and its alumni at your side. That is the future, your future, if you choose. Now for the past. Honor those who brought you here. Kiss your mother. Put your arm around your father's broad shoulders. Offer a kind word to your little sister. And while you're at it, rumple your kid brother's hair. Honor also those who got you through, your professors and tutors, friends, and the working men and women who fed you when you were hungry, kept the lights on when you studied, and swept the floors while you slept. Finally, the present. Today is a day like no other. When these festivities are ended, take one last walk along your old familiar pathways. Stop to read an inscription on a gate or wall. They are there for a reason. Engrave your favorite images of this place on your mind. Then write yourself a letter so that when you are sitting by a window years from now, you can read it, remember it, and smile. Driver, fly away, but never, never, never leave. Now, in a most humbling and inspiring tradition, we recognize the three senior alumni who lead who led the alumni parade this very afternoon. From the Harvard class of 1930, 
Professor Donald Brown, who celebrated his 104th birthday this past November. And we would also like to recognize George Barner from the class of 1929, the eldest class represented here today. from the Radcliffe class of 1937, Lillian Sugarman, who turned 96 last year. 97. Thank you all for leading our alumni parade today. Now let's turn our attention to the other end of the continuum. 10 years ago, Harvard created the Crimson Summer Academy as part of our ongoing commitment to increasing low-income students' access to higher education. In the summer of 2010, the university welcomed its seventh group of high school sophomores from Boston and Cambridge. They are here with us today. Harvard's youngest graduates and now alumni of the Crimson Summer Academy. After living and studying on campus for three consecutive summers, the Crimson Scholars, as these outstanding young people are known, have been accepted at equally outstanding colleges and universities. Now I'd like to ask them to rise so that we can honor this class of CSA scholars with our deepest respect and our best wishes for their success in the future. Congratulations. It is now my privilege to present a member of the class of 1988. <laughs> Elected by her classmates to serve as chief marshal on the occasion of this, their 25th reunion. What does one do with a Harvard education? Literally and figuratively, fly to the moon. This year's chief marshal is a NASA astronaut and an engineer. Be careful around her. 
she is a rocket scientist. <laughs> she has flown three missions aboard Space Shuttle Discovery and has twice been honored with the NASA Exceptional Service Medal. A member of the Harvard Board of Overseers since 2007, she has also received the Harvard Women's Professional Achievement Award and the Harvard Foundation Scientist of the Year Award. Today, we recognize a fellow alumnus who has committed her life to space flight and exploration, Chief Marshal Stephanie Wilson. Will you please stand? And at lunch, she promised me that she's going to start a Harvard club on the moon. <laughs> on June 30th, at midnight, I will, with some reluctance and some relief, turn over the gavel to one of the Alumni Association's most enthusiastic supporters, a member of the college class of 1993. Kate Gellert has given generously of her time and energy to the university, and in particular to the Harvard Alumni Association and the Harvard College Fund. I am so excited for Kate because I'm sure she has no idea just how much fun is in store for her next year. I know I leave the HAA in great hand, hands. Ms. President-elect Kate Gellert, will you please stand? I would also like to acknowledge two other very special guests among the many of you here today. Kathleen McCartney, Dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, who will become president of Smith College on July 1st. And also Evelyn Hammonds, Dean of Harvard College, who plans to return to the faculty after distinguished service as Dean, and before that as Senior Vice Provost for Faculty Development and Diversity. Next, it is my pleasure to announce the results of this spring's election for Harvard's Board of Overseers and the elected directors of the Harvard Alumni Association. Thank you, everyone who voted and participated. Please hold your applause until the names in each category are announced. Five individuals have been elected to the Board of Overseers. They are, in alphabetical order, Susan Carney, class of 73, JD 77, Christopher Field, AB 75, Deanna Lee, class of 84, Sanjay Patel, class of 83, and Gwil Elaine York, class of 80.
The following six alumni have been elected as directors of the Harvard Alumni Association to serve for three years each. They are Richard Bury, AB92, Patrick Chung, AB96, Sheila Kim Parker, AB04, Barbara Natterson Horowitz, AB83, Julie Gage Palmer, AB84, and Argelia Rodriguez, MBA 84. Congratulations. We look forward to working with each of you next year and in years after that. At this annual meeting, the Harvard Alumni Association confers the Harvard Medal, our highest honor for extraordinary service to the university. We recognize those whose devotion has been exemplary and inspirational. President Faust will read the citations. Will each medalist please stand as your name is announced. James V. Baker. President of the Harvard Alumni Association and President of the Harvard Club of the United Kingdom, First Marshal of the Class of 1968, and Student Athlete Extraordinaire. You have served Harvard as a loyal leader and outstanding organizer, strengthening Harvard's relationship with its international alumni. James Baker. Thaddeus Coleman is not able to be here with us to receive his Harvard Medal. His daughter, Levita, is joining us today on his behalf. Although we will hold a special medal presentation at a later date, I want to read his citation to everyone today. William Thaddeus Coleman, Jr., Harvard overseer, distinguished American, and devoted alumnus of the Harvard Law School. You have always upheld the highest standards for law and public service in our community and our country, leading by exhortation and example as a visionary advocate for civility and civil rights. William Thaddeus Coleman, Jr. Georgine Hirschbach, exemplary Harvard citizen, holding countless administrative roles in the college, including registrar, dean of administration, co-master of Courier House. You have served with excellence and selfless devotion, helping to improve the education and life experiences of students, faculty, and staff. Georgine Hirschbach.
Congratulations again to our Harvard medalists. One of the best things I got to do each year was to <clears throat> call each of the winners and share the exciting news with them. This falls into the category of a really big deal. Let's give them a round of applause again. <clears throat> I now welcome the treasurer and member of the Harvard Corporation, James Rothenberg, AB 68, MBA 70, for a salute to the alumni. Jim. President Faust, Ms. Winfrey, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Today is a, a day of celebration. It is also a day of thanks to our alumni and friends, students and parents, faculty and staff. Thank you all for what you do for this great university. To the Harvard Alumni Association and President Carl Muller, thank you for another outstanding year. In the last 12 months, nearly 25,000 alumni have come together in service to Harvard. These volunteers have interviewed more than 35,000 college applicants. They have led over 230 Harvard clubs and shared interest groups, and joined scores of public service activities around the world. Under their leadership, highly successful reunion committees have drawn more than 6,700 alumni and guests to Cambridge this week and help generate, and this is a particularly important to me, nearly 72,000 gifts to Harvard as of May 28th. Today we take a moment to recognize two reunion classes, beginning with the Harvard and Radcliffe class of 1963. In commemoration of their 50th reunion, this class not only is nearing their participation goal, they are also closing in on their class gift record. Representing the class of 1963, our reunion program committee co-chairs Elizabeth Potter and Ken Stewart, and reunion campaign committee co-chairs Robert Beal, Richard Burns, Jonathan Hunkler, John McColdrick, Priscilla Perry Morris, George Mulligan, Adele Smith-Simmons, and Ronald Skates. Would you all please stand? <laughs> Celebrating their 25th reunion is the Harvard and Radcliffe class of 1988. I now think you know where they're sitting. <laughs> I am delighted to report that this class has set a new standard in volunteer fundraising. With four weeks still remaining, the class of 1988 has officially broken the all-time Harvard reunion gift record.
and that is a record for any Harvard reunion class, and they raised a rather astonishing $115 million. By the way, that's the only number I'm allowed to quote this afternoon. <laughs> Please join me in recognizing Reunion Program Committee co-chairs Maura McKinney-Bilaffer, Barry Hume, John London. And given the size of the gift, you can imagine that the Reunion Campaign Committee was a little bit larger than some others. But let's also honor Bill Ackman, Russell Ball, Lawrence Belfer, David Bunning, Zita Espaleta, Stephen King, Jennifer Batchelor, Levine, Alistair McTaggart, Eric Mindich, Lori Pines, Peter Wagner, and Robert Ziff. Please stand so we can thank you all. In keeping with time-honored tradition, the attending members of the class of 1968 are on the platform with us this afternoon, so let's have them all stand and give them a big hand. <laughs> class of 88, sorry, class of 88. Talk about a Freudian slip. My class, my class is the class of 1968. Would you all, would all, uh, now I think a final word of thanks to our newest alumni, the class of 2013. The senior class committee, which organizes class day and countless other events during, during the year, is represented on stage today by Nina Yancey and Scott Yim, the first and second marshals of the class. A second group of seniors, led by co-chairs Lillian Kibble, Grace Matoshi, Skyler Melender, Katie Williams, and Danny Shea, conducted a record-breaking senior gift campaign. More than 80% of all the seniors contributed, and for the first time, every house exceeded a 70% participation rate. Would the marshals and co-marshals and co-chairs please stand and be recognized? Congratulations to the entire class of 2013. To all of you, we continue to be inspired by your volunteerism and philanthropy. Today is a day of celebration, and it is most certainly a day of thanks.
Wow. That was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Let's have a round of applause for that class again. Jim, thank you for your report and, as always, for your wonderful leadership. Please join the Harvard University Band and the Commencement Choir in their performance of Harvardiana. For this work, we must be knit together as one. These were the words of Governor John Winthrop in his famous speech to the brave settlers aboard the Arbella as they neared the shore of the Massachusetts Bay Colony four centuries ago. They are also the words of Drew Faust to us in her inaugural address in 2007. By these words and under her leadership, Harvard has flourished. Let me give you a few examples. Financial aid throughout the university has been expanded, including that to graduate and international students. Next year, approximately 60% of the students in the college will receive from Harvard an estimated $182 million in need-based scholarship aid. We have created a School of Engineering and Applied Science. We have started the iLab for Innovation and the edX Learning Initiative open to the entire world. 
The Fog Art Museum and the undergraduate houses are undergoing renovation and renewal. And what about the men's basketball team? <laughs> Harvard trains leaders who will make a difference for the good in the world. Drew Faust is such a leader. She leads by inspiring others and by her own fine example. I do not know what it was like to be aboard ship with John Winthrop, but I can tell you this. It is a delight to sail with Drew Faust. <laughs> our captain, our president, Drew Faust. It is always a pleasure to greet a sea of alumni on commencement afternoon, even though my role is that of the warm-up act for the feature to come. Today, I am especially aware of the treat we have in store as I look out not on a sea, but a veritable ocean of anticipation. But it is my customary assignment and privilege to offer each spring a report to the alumni on the year that is ending. And this was a year that, for a number of reasons, demands special note. The world is too much with us. The lines of Wordsworth's well-known poem echoed in my mind as I thought about my remarks today. For the world has intruded on us this year in ways we never would have imagined. The university had not officially closed for a day since 1978. This year, it closed three times. Twice, it was for cases of extreme weather. First for Superstorm Sandy, and then for Nemo, the record-breaking February blizzard. The third was, of course, the day of Boston's lockdown in the aftermath of the tragic marathon bombings. This was a year that challenged fundamental assumptions about life's security, stability, and predictability. Yet, as I reflected on these intrusions from a world so very much with us, I was struck by how we at Harvard are so actively engaged in shaping that world, and indeed in addressing so many of the most important and trying questions that these recent events have posed. Just two weeks ago, climate scientists and disaster relief workers gathered here for a two-day conference co-sponsored by the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and the Harvard University Center for the Environment. They came to explore the very issues presented by Sandy and Nemo and to consider how academic researchers and workers on the ground can collaborate more effectively. This gathering represents just one example of the wide range of activities across the university dedicated to addressing the challenges of climate change. How can we advance the science that helps us understand climate change, perhaps even avert it? How can we devise solutions from new technologies to principles of urban design that might mitigate it? 
How can we envision the public policies to manage and respond to it? Harvard is deeply engaged with the broad issues of energy and environment, offering more than 250 courses in this area, gathering 225 faculty through our Environment Center and its programs, enrolling 100 doctoral students from seven schools and many different disciplines in a graduate consortium designed to broaden their understanding of environmental issues. Our faculty are studying atmospheric composition and working to develop renewable energy sources. They are seeking to manage rising oceans and to reimagine cities for an era of increasingly threatening weather. They are helping to fashion environmental regulations and international climate agreements. So the weather isn't something that simply happens at Harvard, even though it may have seemed that way when we had to close this year. It is a focus of study and of research as we work to confront the implications of climate change and help shape national and international responses to its extremes. When Boston experienced the tragedy of the Marathon bombings last month, the city and surrounding municipalities went into lockdown on April 19th to help ensure the capture of the escaped suspect. And Harvard responded in extraordinary ways. Within our own community, students, faculty, and staff went well beyond their ordinary responsibilities to support one another and keep the university operating smoothly and safely under unprecedented circumstances. But we also witnessed our colleagues' magnificent efforts to meet the needs of Boston and our other neighbors in the crisis. The Harvard police worked with other law enforcement agencies, and several of our officers played a critical role in saving the life of the transit officer wounded in Watertown. Doctors, nurses, and other staff, many from our affiliated hospitals, performed a near miracle in ensuring that every injured person who arrived at a hospital survived. Years of disaster planning and emergency readiness enabled these institutions to act in a stunningly coordinated and effective manner. I am deeply proud of the contributions made by members of the Harvard community in the immediate aftermath of the bombings. But our broader and ongoing responsibility as a university is to ask and address the larger questions any such tragedy poses, to prepare for the next crisis and the one after that, even as we work to prevent them, to help us all understand the origins and the meaning of such terrible events in human lives and societies. We do this work in the teaching and research to which we devote ourselves every day. Investigators at the Harvard hospitals are exploring improved techniques for managing injury. Researchers at Brigham and Women's, for example, are pursuing the prospect of leg transplants for amputees. 
a faculty member in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, is studying traumatic brain injury. Faculty in the Business and Kennedy Schools are teaching and learning about leadership in times of crisis, analyzing historic and contemporary examples from Shackleton in Antarctica to Katrina in New Orleans, searching for lessons for the future. The very day of the lockdown, the Mahindra Humanities Center and the Harvard Law School program in negotiation had scheduled a conference on confronting evil, examining the cognitive, behavioral, and social implications of both what it called everyday evils and extraordinary crimes. A few days later, the Harvard Divinity School assembled a panel of experts to discuss religion and terror, exploring sources of violence in Bosnia, in the Middle East, and in the Troubles in Ireland, which had served as a formative experience for our Divinity School Dean in his youth. At the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School, law enforcement, emergency management, and other experts gathered to consider lessons learned from the bombings. As we struggled to understand the events that shook our city and our region, members of our community were already engaged in interpreting the world that had produced such tragedy and in seeking ways to prevent its recurrence. Three unusual days making for an unusual year. Yet these three unusual days underscore and illuminate the usual work of this university, calling on knowledge and research to address fundamental challenges and dilemmas with resources drawn from the widest scope of human inquiry, from the insights of the natural and social sciences to the reflections on meaning and values at the heart of the humanities. Universities urge us towards a better future and equip us as individuals and societies to get there. Yet other events this past year remind us we cannot take what universities do for granted. This year has brought home not just the threats of extreme weather and of terror and violence. It has also been a year that has challenged fundamental assumptions undergirding American higher education and the foundations of our nation's research enterprise. I've just offered some examples of how our research and teaching can contribute to addressing urgent problems facing our world. We live in an era in which knowledge is more vital than ever to nations, economies, and societies. Knowledge is, I often say, the most important currency of the 21st century. And universities are places that more than any other generate and disseminate that knowledge. In the United States, the partnership between universities and the federal government established after World War II has been a powerful engine of scientific discovery and of prosperity. Yet that partnership, now more than a half century old, is threatened by the erosion of federal support for research, a situation made acute by the sequester 
An estimated $10 billion will be cut from the federal government's research budget in 2013. The National Institute of Health calculates that cuts to its resources could mean the loss of more than 20,000 jobs in the life sciences sector. Here at Harvard, we receive approximately 16% of our operating budget from federal research funding. We anticipate we may see declines of as much as $40 million annually in federal support for research. What does all this mean? Faculty are finding that even grant applications with perfect scores and peer evaluations are not getting funded. They see existing awards being reduced. Aspiring younger scientists are fearful they will not receive career-launching grants on which their futures depend. Some are entertaining overtures from countries outside the United States, where science investment is robust and expanding. Students contemplating graduate training are wondering if they should pursue other options. Great ideas that could lead to improved human lives and opportunities and improved understanding are left without support or the means for further development. The world and the nation need the kind of research that Harvard and other American universities undertake. We need the knowledge and understanding that research generates, knowledge about climate change or crisis management or melanoma or effective mental health interventions in schools or hormones that might treat diabetes or any other of a host of other worthy projects our faculty are currently pursuing. We need the support and encouragement for the students who will create our scientific future. We need the economic vitality, the jobs and companies that these ideas and discoveries produce. We need the nation to resist imposing a self-inflicted wound on its intellectual and human capital. We need a nation that believes in and invests in universities because we represent an investment in the ideas and the people that will build and will be the future. So as I... Thank you. So as I report to you on the year we now bring to a close, I want to underscore the threat to universities and to our national infrastructure of knowledge and discovery that the sequester represents. Even in a year when sometimes the world felt too much with us, we have never lost sight of how much what we do here has to do with the world and for the world. To sequester the search for knowledge, to sequester discovery, to sequester the unrelenting drive of our students and faculty to envision and pursue this endless frontier. Such a strategy does more than threaten universities. It puts at risk the capacity and promise of universities to fulfill our commitment to the public good, our commitment to the children and grandchildren, and to the future we will leave them. The challenges facing the world are too consequential. The need for knowledge, imagination, and understanding are too great. The opportunity for improving the human condition too precious
for us to do anything less than rise to the occasion. With the devotion of our alumni, with the inspiration of our new graduates, and I hope with the support of our nation's leaders, we must and we will. Thank you very much. Thank you, President Faust. For over 100 years, Radcliffe College embodied women's presence in this university. Many of you are here celebrating Radcliffe reunions. We welcome you back and look forward to seeing you at Radcliffe Day tomorrow. We have come full circle. Radcliffe College was founded to give women access to a Harvard education. Today, the Radcliffe Institute offers men access to a Radcliffe education. <laughs> to honor the contributions of Radcliffe College and its alumni, and to mark its historical significance for men and women alike, please stand and join in the singing of Radcliffe Now We Rise to Greet Thee. The words are in your program. I can tell that it's about the moment that you all have been waiting for because the photographers have now swarmed to the front right here in front of me. <laughs> Today's commencement speaker completes a triptych that has never before existed in the 377-year history of this great university. Drew Faust, the president of Harvard, grew up in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Our speaker was born near the delta of Mississippi and spent her early days there. And I, president of the Harvard Alumni Association, was raised on a farm in South Carolina. Right about now, up in heaven, our Puritan fathers are scratching their heads and muttering, what has gone on <laughs> down there in Cambridge? 
Our speaker is not here, however, because of where she was raised. Rather, she is here because of how she was raised. She is here especially because of one simple verity that she was taught as a young girl. Many, perhaps all of you, were taught it as well. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. We know where her heart is. It is with young girls in South Africa and families here in America on the Gulf Coast rebuilding their lives. It is with those suffering from HIV and AIDS. It is in Los Angeles with victims of abuse and in New York City at the United Nations. It is with the Red Cross and the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Human Rights and Justice. It is with orphaned children all over the world. It is with countless other people in countless other places also, some of whom we shall never know because at times she extends her hand anonymously. Our successes, fame and fortune show our talents and our luck along the way. But it is what we do with this that reveals who we really are. The ultimate aim of a Harvard education is more than the acquisition of knowledge. It is for us to understand who we are and to be who we should be for ourselves and for others, for our families and friends, for our communities, states, and nations, and for the world. That is more than a matter of knowledge. It is the beginning of wisdom. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. By this measure, we know who our speaker is. Truly, she is a herald of light and a bearer of love, of whom we sing in the final words of Fair Harvard. She is a shining example of the finest of the American spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you not Oprah, but as my mother taught me to say long years ago, Ms. Winfrey. <laughs> my fellow honorans, uh, Carl, that was so beautiful, thank you so much, and James Rothenberg, Stephanie Wilson, Harvard faculty, with a special bow to my friend, Dr. Henry Louis Gates. All of you alumni, with a special bow to the class of 88 and your $115 million. And to you, members of the Harvard class of 2013, hello. I thank you for allowing me to be a part of the conclusion of this chapter of your lives and the commencement of your next chapter. 
To say that I'm honored doesn't even begin to quantify the depth of gratitude that really accompanies uh, an honorary doctorate from Harvard. Uh, not too many little girls from rural Mississippi have made it all the way here to Cambridge. And I can tell you that I consider today, as I sat on the stage this morning, getting teary for you all and then teary for myself, uh, I consider today a defining milestone in a very long and a, and a blessed journey. My one hope today is, is, to, is that I can be a source of some inspiration. I'm going to address my remarks to anybody who's ever felt inferior or felt disadvantaged, felt screwed by life. This is a speech for the quad. <laughs> Actually, I, w I was so honored, I wanted to do something really special for you. I wanted to be able to have you look under your seats and there would be free, <laughs> free uh, uh, master and doctor degrees. But I see, I see you got that covered already. I will be honest with you, I felt a lot of pressure over the past few weeks to come up with something that I could share with you that you hadn't heard before, because after all, y'all went to Harvard, I did not. But then I realized that you don't have to necessarily go to Harvard to have a driven, obsessive, type A personality, <laughs> but it helps. And while I may not have graduated from here, I admit, that my personality is about as Harvard as they come. You know, my, my television career began unexpectedly. Uh, as you heard this morning, I was in the Miss Fire Prevention Contest. That was when I was 16 years old in Nashville, Tennessee, and you had the requirement of having to have red hair in order to win up until the year that I entered. So they were doing the question and answer period because I knew I wasn't gonna win in the swimsuit competition. So. During the question and answer period, the question came, why, young lady, what would you like to be when you grow up? And by the time they got to me, all the good answers were gone. <laughs> so I had seen Barbara Walters on the Today Show that morning, so I answered, I would like to be a journalist. I would like to tell other people's stories in a way that makes a difference in their lives and the world. And as those words were coming out of my mouth, I went, whoa, this is pretty good. I would like to be a journalist. I want to make a difference. Well, I was on television by the time I was 19 years old. And in 1986, I launched my own television show with a relentless determination to succeed. At first, I was nervous about the competition, and then I became my own competition, raising the bar every year, pushing, pushing, pushing myself as hard as I knew. Sound familiar to anybody here? Eventually, we did make it to the top, and we stayed there for 25 years. The Oprah Winfrey Show was number one in our time slot for 21 years. And I have to tell you, I became pretty comfortable with that level of success. But a few years ago, I decided, as you will at some point, that it was time to recalculate. 
find new territory, break new ground. So I ended the show and launched OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network. The initials just worked out for me. So one year later, after launching OWN, nearly every media outlet had proclaimed that my new venture was a flop. Not just a flop, but a big, bold flop, they call it. I can still remember the day I opened up USA Today and read the headline, Oprah not quite standing on her own. I mean, really, USA Today, now that's the nice newspaper. It, it, it really was, this time last year, the worst period in my professional life. I was stressed and I was frustrated and quite frankly, I was, I was actually, I was embarrassed. It was right around that time that President Faust called and asked me to speak here. And I thought, you want me to speak to Harvard graduates? What, I, what could I possibly say to Harvard graduates, some of the most successful graduates in the world in the very moment when I had stopped succeeding? So I got off the phone with President Faust and I went to the shower. It was either that or a bag of Oreos. <laughs> so I chose the shower. And I was in the shower a long time. And as I was in the shower, the words of an old hymn came to me. You may not know it. It's by and by when the morning comes. And I started thinking about when the morning might come. Because at the time, I thought I was stuck in a hole. And the words came to me, trouble, Trouble don't last always from that hymn. This too shall pass. And I thought, as I got out of the shower, I am gonna turn this thing around and I will be better for it. And when I do, I'm gonna go to Harvard and I'm gonna speak the truth of it. So I'm here today to tell you, I have turned that network around. And it was all because I wanted to do it by the time I got to speak to you all. So thank you so much. You don't know what motivation you were for me. Thank you. I'm even prouder to share a fundamental truth that you might not have learned even as graduates of Harvard unless you studied uh, the ancient Greek hero with Professor Naj. <laughs> Professor Naj, who as we were coming in this morning said, please, Ms. Winfrey, walk decisively. I shall walk decisively. <laughs> this is what I want to share. It doesn't matter how far you might rise. At some point, you are bound to stumble. Because if you're constantly doing what we do, raising the bar, if you are constantly pushing yourself higher, higher, the law of averages, not to mention the myth of Icarus, uh, predicts that you will at some point fall. And when you do, I want you to know this, remember this, there is no such thing as failure. Failure is just life trying to move us in another direction. Now, when you're down there in a the hole, it looks like failure. So this past year, I had to spoon feed those words to myself. 
And when you're down in the hole, when that moment comes, it's really okay to feel bad for a little while. Give yourself time to mourn what you think you may have lost. But then, here's the key. Learn from every mistake. Because every experience, encounter, and particularly your mistakes, are there to teach you and force you into being more of who you are. And then figure out what is the next right move. And the key to life is to develop an internal, moral, emotional GPS that can tell you which way to go. Because now and forevermore, when you Google yourself, your search results will read, Harvard 2013. <laughs> and in a very competitive world, that really is a calling card, because I can tell you, as one who employs a lot of people, when I see Harvard, I sit up a little straight and say, where is he or she? Bring them in. <laughs> it's an impressive calling card that can lead to even more impressive bullets in the years ahead. Lawyer, senator, CEO, scientist, physicist, winners of Nobel and Pulitzer Prizes, or late night talk show host. But the challenge of life, I have found, is to build a resume that doesn't simply tell a story about what you want to be, but it's a story about who you want to be. It's a resume that doesn't just tell a story about what you want to accomplish, but why. A story that's not just a collection of titles and, and positions, but a story that's really about your purpose. Because when you inevitably stumble and find yourself stuck in a hole, that is the story that will get you out. What is your true calling? What is your dharma? What is your purpose? For me, that discovery came in 1994 when I interviewed a little girl who, who had decided to collect pocket change in order to help other people in need. She raised $1,000 all by herself, and I thought, well, if that little nine-year-old girl with a bucket and a big heart could do that, I wonder what I could do. So I asked for our viewers to take up their own change collection, and in one month, just from pennies, and nickels and dimes, we raised more than $3 million that we used to send one student from every state in the United States to college. That was the beginning of the Angel Network. And so what I did was I simply asked our viewers, do what you can wherever you are, from wherever you sit in life. Give me your time or your talent, your money if you have it, and they did. Extend yourself in kindness to other human beings wherever you can. And together we built 55 schools in 12 different countries and restored nearly 300 homes that were devastated by Hurricanes Rita and Katrina. So the Angel Network, I've been on the air for a long time, but it was the Angel Network that actually focused my internal GPS. It helped me to decide that I wasn't just gonna be on TV every day, but that the goal of my shows, my interviews, my business, my philanthropy, all of it, whatever ventures I might pursue, would be to make clear that what unites us is ultimately 
far more redeeming and compelling than anything that separates me. Because what had become clear to me, and I want you to know, it isn't always clear in the beginning, because as I said, I'd been on television since I was 19 years old. But around 94, I got really clear. So don't expect the clarity to come all at once, to know your purpose right away. But what became clear to me was that I was here on earth to use television and not be used by it, to use television to illuminate the transcendent power of our better angels. So this angel network, it didn't just change the lives of those who were helped, but the lives of those who also did the helping. It reminded us that no matter who we are or what we look like or what we may believe, it is both possible and more importantly, it, it becomes powerful to come together in common purpose and common effort. I saw something on the Bill Moore show recently that so reminded me of this point. It was an interview with David and Francine Wheeler. They lost their seven-year-old son, Ben, in the Sandy Hook tragedy. And even though gun safety legislation to strengthen background checks had just been voted down in Congress at the time that they were doing this interview, they talked about how they refused to be discouraged. Francine said this, she said, our hearts are broken, but our spirits are not. I'm gonna tell them what it's like to find a conversation about change that is love, and I'm gonna do that without fighting them. And then her husband David added this, you simply cannot demonize or vilify someone who doesn't agree with you. Because the minute you do that, your discussion is over. And we cannot do that any longer. The problem is too enormous. There has to be some way that this darkness can be banished with light. In our political system and in the media, we often see the reflection of a country that is polarized, that is paralyzed, and is self-interested. And yet, I know you know the truth. We all know that we are better than the cynicism and the pessimism that is regurgitated throughout Washington and the 24-hour cable news cycle. Not my channel, by the way. <laughs> we understand that the vast majority of people in this country believe in stronger background checks because they realize that we can uphold the Second Amendment and also reduce the violence that is robbing us of our children. They don't have to be incompatible. And we understand that most Americans believe in a clear path to citizenship for the 12 million undocumented immigrants who reside in this country because it's possible to both enforce our laws and at the same time embrace the words on the Statue of Liberty that have welcomed generations of huddle masses to our shores. We can do both. And we understand I know you do, because you went to Harvard, that people from both parties and no party believe that indigent mothers 
and families should have access to healthy food and a roof over their heads and a strong public education. Because here in the richest nation on earth, we can afford a basic level of security and opportunity. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? Really, what are you going to do about it? Maybe you agree with these beliefs, maybe you don't. Maybe you care about these issues, or maybe there are other challenges that you, class of 2013, are passionate about. Maybe you want to make a difference by serving in government. Maybe you want to launch your own television show. Or maybe you simply want to collect some change. Your parents would appreciate that about now. <laughs> the point is, your generation is charged with this task of breaking through what the body politic has thus far made impervious to change. Each of you has been blessed with this enormous opportunity of attending this prestigious school. You now have a chance to better your life, the lives of your neighbors, and also the life of our country. When you do that, let me tell you what I know for sure. That's when your story gets really good. Maya Angelou always says, when you learn, teach. When you get, give. That, my friends, is what gives your story purpose and meaning. So you all have the power in your own way to develop your own angel network. And in doing so, your class will be armed with more tools of influence and empowerment than any other generation in history. I did it in an analog world. I was blessed with a platform that at its height reached nearly 20 million viewers a day. Now here in a world of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Tumblr, you can reach billions in just seconds. You're the generation that rejected predictions about your detachment and your disengagement by showing up to vote in record numbers in 2008. And when the pundits, when the pundits said, they said, they talked about you, they said you'd be too disappointed, you'd be too dejected to repeat that same kind of turnout in the 2012 election, and you proved them wrong by showing up in even greater numbers. That's who you are. This generation, your generation, I know, has developed a finely honed radar for BS. Can you say BS at Harvard? <laughs> the spin and phoniness and artificial nastiness that saturates so much of our national debate. I know you all understand better than most that real progress requires authentic, an authentic way of being, honesty, and above all, empathy. I have to say that the single most important lesson I learned in 25 years talking every single day to people was that there is a common denominator in our human experience. Most of us, I tell you, we don't want to be divided. What we want, the common denominator that I found in every single interview, is we want to be validated. We want to be understood. I've done over 35,000 interviews in my career. And as soon as that camera shuts off, everyone always turns to me and inevitably in their own way asks this question, was that okay? <laughs> I heard it from President Bush. I heard it from President Obama. 
I've heard it from heroes and from housewives. I've heard it from victims and perpetrators of crimes. I even heard it from Beyonce and all of her Beyonce-ness. <laughs> she finishes performing, hands me the microphone and says, was that okay? <laughs> Friends and family, yours, enemies, strangers, in every argument, in every encounter, every exchange, I will tell you, they all want to know one thing. Was that okay? Did you hear me? Do you see me? Did what I say mean anything to you? And even though this is the college where Facebook was born, my hope is that you will try to go out and have more face-to-face -face conversations with people you may disagree with. That you'll have the, the, the courage to look them in the eye and hear their point of view and help make sure that the speed and distance and anonymity of our world doesn't cause us to lose our ability to stand in somebody else's shoes and recognize all that we share as a people. This is imperative for you as an individual and for our success as a nation. There has to be some way that this darkness can be banished with light, says the man whose little boy was massacred on just an ordinary Friday in December. So whether you call it soul or spirit or higher self intelligence, there is, I know this, there is a light inside each of you, all of us, that illuminates your very human beingness, if you let it. And as a young girl from rural Mississippi, I learned long ago that being myself was much easier than pretending to be Barbara Walters. <laughs> Although when I first started, because I had Barbara in my head, I would try to sit like Barbara, talk like Barbara, move like Barbara. And then one night I was on the news, reading the news, and I called Canada, Canada. And, uh, <laughs> That was the end of me being Barbara. I cracked myself up on TV, couldn't stop laughing, and my real personality came through. And I figured out, oh gee, I can be a much better Oprah than I could be a pretend Barbara. I know that, I know that you all might have a little anxiety now and hesitation about leaving the comfort of college and putting those Harvard credentials to the test. But no matter what challenges or setbacks or disappointments you may encounter along the way, you will find true success and happiness if you have only one goal. There really is only one, and that is this, to fulfill the highest, most truthful expression of yourself as a human being. You want to max out your humanity by using your energy to lift yourself up, your family, and the people around you. Theologian Howard Thurman said it best. He said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. The world needs people like Michael Stalzenberg from Fort Lauderdale, 
When Michael was just eight years old, Michael nearly died from a bacterial infection that cost him both of his hands and both of his feet. And in an instant, this vibrant little boy became a quadruple amputee, and his life was changed forever. But in losing who he once was, Michael discovered who he wanted to be. He refused to sit in that wheelchair all day and feel sorry for himself. So with prosthetics, he learned to walk and run and play again. He joined his middle school lacrosse team. And last month, when he learned that so many victims of the Boston Marathon bombing would become new amputees, Michael decided to banish that darkness with light. Michael and his brother Harris created Mikey'sRun.com to raise $1 million for other amputees by the time Harris runs the 2014 Boston Marathon. More than 1,000 miles away from here, these two young brothers are bringing people together to support this Boston community the way their community came together to support Michael. And when this 13-year-old man was asked about his fellow amputees, he said this, first, they will be sad. They're losing something they will never get back. And that's scary. I was scared. But they'll be okay. They just don't know that yet. We might not always know it. We might not always see it or hear it on the news or even feel it in our daily lives. But I have faith that no matter what, class of 2013, you will be okay. And you will make sure our country is okay. I have faith because of that nine-year-old girl who went out and collected the change. I have faith because of David and Francine Wheeler. I have faith because of Michael and Harris Stolzenberg. And I have faith because of you, the network of angels sitting here today. One of them, Khadija Williams, who came to Harvard four years ago. Khadija had attended 12 schools in 12 years, living out of garbage bags, amongst pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers, homeless, going into department stores, Walmart in the morning to bathe herself so that she wouldn't smell in front of her classmates. And today she graduates as a member of the Harvard class of 2013. From time to time, you may stumble, fall. You will for sure count on this. No doubt you will have questions and you will have doubts about your path. But I know this, if you're willing to listen, to be guided by that still small voice that is the GPS within yourself, to find out what makes you come alive you will be more than okay. You will be happy, you will be successful, and you will make a difference in the world. Congratulations, class of 2013. Congratulations to your family and friends. Good luck, and thank you for listening. Is that okay?
Thank you very much, Ms. Winfrey. That was wonderful. That was okay. That was better than okay. Please stand and join me now as we sing Fair Harvard. The words appear in your program. On behalf of the Harvard Alumni Association, let me once again welcome and congratulate the class of 2013. Honor the past, shape the future, embrace the present. One year ago, this is what I told the class of 2012 on class day. This is how I aim to live every day, and this is the ethos of the Harvard Alumni Association. I now hereby declare the 2013 meeting of the Harvard Alumni Association adjourned to reconvene on the 29th of May, 2014. Thank you all for coming.
so we wrap up another meeting of the Harvard Alumni Association. A warm day, a large crowd, and I will note that we've all enjoyed it. President Faust spoke. She said she was pleased to be the speaker for the alumni, the alumni, and to warm up the act for Oprah. Uh, she noted that she noted that the world has intruded on Harvard, and that for the first time the university had closed three times: two for extreme weather for the Sandy and for Nemo, and the third for the tragic bombing at the Marathon. Uh, and she noted that uh, the ability and predictably at Harvard to actively engage in shaping the world, that the groups have come together, the whole of the Harvard to work with disaster relief with the workers in the area, how to cooperate in fields directed towards uh, actions of this sort that we have to predict in the future, and for disaster relief uh, that could happen, and how to we need to change and to cooperate uh, in fields and directed at climate change and other solutions deeply involved in these activities. Uh, she noted that Harvard worked with other enforcement agencies to save the truant officer, the, uh, the transit officer, excuse me, and that the directors and nurses from all the hospitals around that are Harvard affiliated were coordinated to work in the need to, uh, to take care of the problems. Uh, we need to address higher concerns, she said, to prepare for the next challenges that through teaching and research and, to give, and she gave examples of efforts throughout the university. They were three unusual days. She called for the knowledge and research to continue in these areas. She noted the challenges facing research, the institutions, the partnerships that would gather, the university and the government were powerful tools for the future and are now threatened. She loss of funds leads to reduction in research and this is of great concern to her and to the future of Harvard. She needs to underscore the thought that universities need to deal with this threat, to deal with it for our children and grandchildren, and we need to rise to the occasion with alumni support for the future. And we heard Oprah Winfrey, honorary degree recipient today. She's a journalist, author, talk show host, philanthropist. She urged the 2013 Harvard graduates to be themselves to find out what makes them come alive. The world needs more people who come alive. It doesn't always come quickly, it doesn't always come e easily, and they will no doubt stumble along, along the way. But the way to be happy, successful, and make a difference is to come alive. And now to close our session today, we will, I will read the Villanelle for an anniversary written for Harvard's 350th celebration in 1986 by Seamus Haney. The title of the poem is John Harvard Walks the Yard. A spirit moved, John Harvard walked the yard. The atom lay unsplit, the west unwon. The book stood upon the, stood open and the gates unbarred. The maps dreamt on like moon dust, nothing stirred. The future was a verb in hibernation. A spirit moved, John Harvard walked the yard. Before the classic style, before the clabber, 
all through the small hours of an origin. The books did open and the gate unbarred. Night passage of a migratory bird, wing flap, gown flap, like a homing pigeon, a spirit moved, John Harvard walked the yard. Was that his soul look sped to its reward by grace or works, a shooting star, an omen? The book stood open and the gates unbarred. Begin again where frosts and tests were hard. Find yourself or founder. Here, imagine, a spirit moves. John Harvard walks the yard. The books stand open and the gates unbarred. And that is the end of Harvard's 362nd commencement celebration. We look forward to seeing you all at the 363rd commencement on May 29th. 2014. Thank you, Rennie. Thank you, Nancy. See you next year. It's been a pleasure to work with you.